As Kale already mentioned just a few minutes ago, we are certainly thankful for the opportunity all of us have today to come together, to assemble as we are. And certainly, not only our membership, but our visitors, our guests who've come our way, we're delighted to have you. And it's our hope that all of us can engage in this worship in such a way that it'll not only be a blessing for ourselves, but certainly, most importantly, it will glorify the cause of God. You probably can tell on the slide behind me that our focus today, at least for the period of our study, will give our attention to the thought of attendance. And it'll be our goal to simply do that, using the Word of God thoroughly and completely as our guide. I did want to use this introductory slide, though, to promote and prompt that particular discussion like this. The Bible has so much to say about the subject that really there's more than what I can share today. And so this will be a two-part series. This is the way I envision it currently. We're going to look at the positive aspect of attendance this morning, the emphasis that the Word of God puts before you and me as to why we should want to attend every single service of the church. Next Sunday, if it be the will of God, we'll not only revisit the subject, but do so from a negative standpoint. I hope that as we look at all of that, we will be motivated with great incentive to appreciate what the Bible has to say on this, on this very interesting topic. You'll notice about the middle of that slide that the issue concerning attendance is a topic that really isn't that exciting to some people. It's a topic that does not, in fact, well up in some with a great sense of urgency. I would encourage all of us with great emphasis to approach this subject with honesty. After all, if the Bible has things to say about this subject, and we're going to have to give an answer on the Day of Judgment concerning it, we will do ourselves no favor to ignore it, to neglect it, to try to sweep it under the rug, or to try to excuse what the Bible otherwise does not allow or condone. Now that being said, I hope that you have your Bible handy and as we begin to look at a few of these passages, I thought we would begin by at least reflecting upon the kind of attendance we're discussing. We're not talking about attendance at a ball game or attendance at a local civic meeting. We clearly are talking about the attendance at the services of the church. And so what does the Bible have to say about the assembling of the saints? The verse that Brother Vestal read a moment ago from Hebrews 10.25 is probably the most frequently used verse as it relates to that topic. But my, my suspicion is that many times you and I do not read that verse correctly. We read into it differently than what it actually says. And for that reason, let's use the first slide as a bit of an emphasis on looking back to that passage. May I read it again in the King James translation? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. As we build up our consideration of that passage, let's begin like this. We're talking about the assembling of the church. It's significant, don't you think, that the actual original word, Greek word, that's translated church dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament is the word ecclesia. E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. Now, you and I may not be Greek scholars, and that's fine. 
All we need to know is what's the emphasis of those original words. The word klesis means a calling. The prefix ek means out of. And so the church describes people who've been called out of one environment, namely a world of sin, into another environment, namely a covenant relationship with God through Christ. And so as the church, we are the called out. But what's so terribly interesting is that that same word ecclesia is used to simply describe an assembly in other passages of the New Testament, like Acts 19, for example, verses 38 and following. Don't you think it's interesting then that the very word that carries the significance of church carries the idea of an assembly? Ever since its establishment, the church, of course, is people who seemingly thrive on coming together. They love the thought of coming together with those of like precious faith in assemblies to encourage each other and, of course, to serve the God of heaven. It's no wonder in that connection, in that light, you'll notice about the middle of that slide then that there are several things that could be quickly mentioned. The Pippin congregation... Now, many other congregations could list several things, but we assemble on Sunday mornings at 9.30 for Bible study. We assemble at 10.30 on Sunday mornings for a period of worship. We assemble 5.30 Sunday afternoon for a period of worship. We assemble at 7 p.m. Wednesday for a period of Bible study. And there may well be others, such as gospel meetings, lectureships, singings, whatever the particular case may well be. But in light of our discussion today, what should we then say about all of them? First of all, what does the New Testament describe concerning these assemblies? The first thing to notice, the Corinthian correspondence reminds us near the bottom of that slide, that those brethren came together in one place. And they did so for the purpose, thus, of particular service to God in worship. And therefore, when we come together, we do so just as the New Testament prescribes and describes that particular thing. That means then that we can't relegate this to some imaginary matter. We might ask it this way, how can we be in separate locations and yet encourage each other in song like we're commanded in Colossians 3.16? If I'm singing in my house and you're singing in yours, I'm not impacting you, nor are you impacting me. And yet the New Testament says we teach and admonish one another in song. It would thus seem that the New Testament is not at all consistent with any online or virtual worship services. It just doesn't permit them as acceptable substitutes for the consideration of a physical assembly. Not only that, as we close that slide you'll appreciate with me the heightened understanding that came with those first century Christians. Many of them had come out of a Judaistic history. And yet in Acts chapter 2, when the church was established, from that point forward, they considered it essential to meet. And so in Acts 20 verse 7, when Paul came on the third missionary journey to the city of Troas, he met with the brethren on the first day of the week. They came together to break bread. Do you note the language? They came together. They didn't remain in their separate locations and imagine they had come together. 
They didn't remain in their separate locations under the suspicion that that was acceptable. They came together. And in that sense, several observations naturally follow, prompted by some of these questions. I've just mentioned then that those brethren in Troas came together to take the Lord's Supper. But there are some of our assemblies, such as the morning Bible study that we just had a few minutes ago, where we didn't take the Lord's Supper. Throughout the years, there have been those who've argued, well, then those Bible studies are not necessary. I don't have to be there for them as long as I'm there for the worship service. What does the Bible say about this? Is it important to be present at the Bible study? What about the Wednesday night one? Is that one important? It is with that in mind. Let's ask those two questions that close that slide and then launch into at least some applications. The first of those questions certainly is this one. Must I, as a Christian, attend every service of the local congregation? Or again, is the Sunday morning service for worship where the Lord's Supper is taken, is that one enough? And secondly, in addition to that, if I am not there, then what about my absence? Are there any so-called excused absences, if you please? And remember, it is incumbent upon us to approach this with honesty. What I deem is an acceptable excuse may mean nothing in the eyes of God. And after all, His is the only opinion that matters. With that said, let's turn back to Hebrews 10.25 and draw our first conclusion. The entirety of the rest of this message is centered around why should I want, as a Christian, to attend every service of the church? May I say it again? Why, as a Christian, should it be by desire to attend every service of the church? Reason number one, it's commanded. Now back to our passage. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. The first reason why you and I should want to be present at the assemblies of the church is because it is commanded that I be there. Look back to the Word. The way that you and I might be tempted to read that verse is, not forsaking the assembly. It does not say assembly. It says, assembling. Do you note the ending? Whatever the assembly happens to be, whether it's the morning worship, whether it's the Bible study hour, it's whenever the brethren assemble. That's what the Word suggests. He isn't only casting a spotlight on the service at which the Lord's Supper is observed. It's the assembling whenever, wherever it takes place. And that's what the inspired writer says, don't forsake it. Do not be absent if you must not be. For that reason, you'll note about the middle of that slide, it's a bit significant to appreciate then this is a command. Every much in the same variety as the host of other commandments you and I so lovingly appreciate. When Jesus said, love your enemies, is that important? May I excuse myself concerning that command? I'll love some of them, but some of them I don't much care for. I don't believe I will. 
You and I know that is not an option. He said, love them. And as Christians, we develop in ourselves the consideration to bring that about because that's what the Lord wants me to do. And in the same way, He says, don't forsake these assemblies. Don't forsake the assembling of the saints. In that connection, it is the second word of that verse that, at least in the mind of some, has taken on a significant meaning. Let me, let me show you, share with you what I mean. There are many who will look upon that verse and say, that word forsake means a prolonged, repetitive, habitual set of actions in life. And by that, someone might say, well, if I miss one service, that verse doesn't apply because that word forsake means an ongoing, repetitive action. And so I'd have to miss, oh, at least half a dozen or so before the elders would ever have anything to say to me because it's got to be a habit that I have formed to miss. Are you sure that's what that word means? If you look at the other places in the New Testament where the Greek word that's translated forsake occurs, it is true that some of them describe an ongoing repetitive set of actions. But not all of them do. One of them in particular, Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Had God forsaken him a bunch of times? You know there was one time and one time only. One time and one time only, and yet the Lord used that word to describe it. It's the same word that appears here. I'd suggest if I miss one service without good reason to do so, I have become guilty of what Hebrews 10.25 says I should not do. One. And therefore, we have an appreciation, do we not, that it was the will of God that those who have adopted the consideration of following Him appreciate that the assembling of the saints is not only important, not only significant, but there are many good reasons why I should want to do it. About the middle and bottom part of that slide, you'll notice that that command takes us to appreciate this. May I say that if you or I, or an individual who claims to be a Christian, chooses to forsake the assembly, that says far, far more about that person's heart condition. Because the Bible says, as Jesus Himself said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. That's a commandment. It's something I should want to do. I should thrill at the thought of doing. And Psalm 89, 7 reminds us that in the assembly of the saints, how greatly God is magnified. It should be so significant to you and me that we want to praise God, to honor what's important to Him, to love to gather with those who feel the same way we do. May I again say, if I then choose not to be present, that says far more about where my heart really is. Let's close that slide then like this. When you think about the various assemblies of the church, it is true that there is a distinction in the way that their authority is presented in the New Testament. The New Testament books describe the assembly for worship on Sunday. The first day of the week where we give as we've been prospered, where we partake of the Lord's Supper, where we enjoy a message from the nature of the Word of God as they did in Acts 20. That one again is not under the authority of the eldership. The elders cannot cancel that service. 
They cannot redefine it. They have nothing they can do with it. It is a commandment just as surely as anything else. How do you and I know we have to be baptized? Because God said so. It's not the fact that elders decided that that was to be done. It's not that there was some group of men who made the choice that that's what one must do to be a Christian. The Bible teaches it, and so it teaches about the assembly for worship. Now, the Bible doesn't come out and talk about a Wednesday evening Bible study in those explicit words. But what the Bible has done is to leave under the jurisdiction of elders the opportunity for them to make decisions about the spiritual well-being of the members of their flock. And they may choose to meet on a Wednesday or a Thursday or a Tuesday, or yea, they may choose to meet every day of the week. And if they did so, it would be our obligation to assemble with the saints. Our elders have chosen to assemble for Bible study on Sunday morning in addition to the worship, on Wednesday evening for a period of Bible study, and also on Sunday afternoon as well for a period of worship. And so as we appreciate their leadership and the appreciation that goes with their delegated authority, we thrill at the thought of doing that which God says we ought to do concerning what they've said. Obey them that have the rule over you, Hebrews thirteen seventeen. But may I suggest another reason? Why else should I want to attend every service of the church? Not only are they commanded, it's also to be noted that spiritual growth is of the essence. One of the things the Bible so powerfully sets before each of us as Christians is a growth, a maturity, a development, if you please. Isn't it true that we find some passages that describe a babe in faith? 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2 describe those who must desire, in fact, as they appreciate the sincere milk of the Word at that point in their life, it's desirable that they graduate at some point to meteor matters of faithfulness. May I ask, how does that growth come about? We all know easily how a baby, a physical baby, grows. That baby exercises, its parents provide the necessary nourishment by way of food, and the other things concerning environment, may I ask, how do we grow spiritually? Is it not true that association and exercise and proper nourishment? I've asked you to look at these verses with me. In 2 Peter 1, verses 5 and following, Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. Where are those things encouraged? You're not going to find them at home, at least in typical regard. And you're not going to find them at the golf course and at the lake, and you're not going to find them on the television for sure. What you'll find is the place wherein those are encouraged should be the place we desire to be. In 2 Peter 3.18, listen to this commandment with me. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Where is the knowledge of the Master found? Is it not found in the group of people who have pronounced allegiance to Him and who have pronounced 
the declaration of lifting high the Bible as the only rule of practice and belief. Additionally, on that consideration, you may think with me for a moment about the great benefit that comes by association with Christians. I think all of us probably know it well. Quite often at work, you're discouraged because you hear foul language. You see people who are doing what they ought not do, and you know it and they know it. But yet they're serving the devil and they don't seem to care. It's something rather special to meet with people who try to live right. It's not to say we don't make our mistakes, but it is to say that we have pronounced commitment to a higher power than we And we have pronounced our complete commitment in His book. Those of like precious faith are mentioned in 2 Peter 1 verse 1. And to meet with people like that, they're the very people that apparently we're hoping to be in heaven with. It's the very ones that we appreciate are trying to journey to the same place we are. There's something to be said about the encouragement that's to be found in people like that. The world, in many cases, is not going to encourage us. It's going to discourage us. It's going to, in fact, slice us in ways that cause us to question our faith, to cause us to behave as we ought not. And yet, those of like precious faith would lift high purity and honorableness and honesty and forthrightness and always doing what Jesus would say we should. To meet together with people like that buoys us upward and encourages us. Why would I ever want to miss an opportunity like that? One final thing in that point. The Bible does present a rather tragic description of those who don't grow spiritually, those who choose to remain babes in Christ. I have in mind Hebrews 5, verses 12 to 14. And there the description is very bleak. And the description is, in fact, almost hurtful. As you hear the inspired writer talk about those who hadn't exercised their faith, those who still, though they ought to have been teachers, they still were in need of somebody to teach them the basic rudimentary elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Hebrew writer said, by now you should have been a teacher. You should have been more mature and developed. But you still have need for milk in the Word. That was sad. Where do you and I stand in that regard? Have we advanced in maturity to the point where we are able to chew on meatier matters of the Word, or are we still babies in faith? If we've been a Christian for 20, 25, 30, 40 years, and we're still a babe in Christ, whose fault is that? has to be mine. can't be the elders. can't be Jesus. And it can't be God. Reason number three, why should I want to attend every service? May I offer this one? Would you consider it a good thing? Are those services good? Is there anything negative or bad or improper about them? I would offer that this world has some interesting appreciations. There are things in this world that in some regard might have an element of goodness about it. But it's probably not difficult to think about possible negative connotations to it. For instance, you might have an interest in some particular sporting activity, but you turn on the TV and all you see is one beer commercial after another. 
I don't like that aspect of it. And quite often, that particular activity may take place exactly on Sunday. And so there are so many people who choose to miss church services so they can go attend it. Well, that's not good either. But can you think of anything bad when it comes to a service of the church of our Lord? Look at some of these elements with me. Wouldn't it be easy to say that it's always right to set a good example for others, including our family, even others that may be observing? We're told in Proverbs 22.1 that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor more than wisdom and honor. Surely, the fact connected to the goodness that would come, would it be a good example for others to see us attending the services of the church? How many times have there been statements made by some, well, you talk about how important the church is, but yet you weren't there last Wednesday night because I went, but you weren't there. Where were you? It's easy to say one thing, and does our life in complete trueness reflect what we claim? Good. One last thing. You and I are told as Christians that we are to be an amazing example. We are like a city set on a hill. We're like that light that you don't cover up with a bushel. We are said to be the salt of the earth. Does my example in terms of my attendance reflect that I'm the light of the world? Does it reflect that I'm the salt of the earth? Does it reflect that I'm a light to one and all, not just on Sunday, but every day of the week? Does my attendance pattern reflect that? It is a good question. And it, in fact, says something about the litmus consideration of where I stand in my faith commitment to God. That third reason about goodness leads us to note this. If... It is a good thing that lead us to say these services. And surely they are. Then didn't James say that whoever knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So if it's a good thing to attend and I choose not to, then certainly I've become guilty of what we'll describe more thoroughly next Sunday. Reason number four. Why else should you and I want to attend every service? I've entitled this one, True to Jesus. May I ask as Christians, what do we proclaim? What claim have we made? What profession have we declared? Is it not the case? We all have made a profession. Let's detail it. Romans 10, verse number 10, in a special character, it says that the confession you and I made, and the literal Greek carries the thought of the profession we declare. When you and I made the statement, I believe with all of my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that probably took place right before you were immersed. Right before you were baptized, you made the confession that with all your heart, you believe Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the Son of God, and furthermore, that He is Lord of your life. Now, if He's Lord of your life and mine, that means He's the Master, and we are obligated to follow Him, whatever He says. 
How true to Jesus are you and I? He says, I ought to be here. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And we've already stated, He commanded me to be here. So do I love Him or not? How true am I to what Jesus has demanded? Look at the other ways in which that is presented. We're commanded to hold fast that which is the trueness of the gospel. Am I clinging tenaciously to the truth of that gospel? Or when the brethren meet, am I somewhere else doing something else? When I could be there. Doesn't that speak volumes then about how closely am I making my profession a real part of my ongoing activities? About the middle of that slide, there are several more ways in which we can see this. Jesus very clearly taught in Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So when the brethren meet, when the kingdom is there in assembly, where am I? If I'm not there when I could be, am I really putting the kingdom first? I might say that I am, but how, how, how really am I doing it? If I'm choosing to be at the house, watching TV, mowing the yard, playing with the grandchildren, doesn't matter what else I'm doing. If I could be there but choose not to be, am I really putting the kingdom first? That text leads me to the next one. We are told that as Christians, seek ye first the kingdom of God, but then that quickly takes us to Paul's famous statement in Colossians. If ye have been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. If you've been risen with Christ, that means you were baptized. That's what the phrase means. Are you seeking then above? Are you seeking those things first? Is your attention riveted there to those who are such that that's the case, you know how special and sweet it is. But may I say, if that's not characteristic of, of behavior, am I really seeking first the kingdom? Am I really seeking those things above? Let's close that slide like this. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus there even said that this consideration is such that even family must come second. When family come to visit, do you stay at the house to entertain them rather than go to church services? If so, you're putting family first, not the kingdom. And I'd be guilty of the same. What one ought to do is invite them to come too, and hopefully they will. But if they don't, let them know where first priority is. You can invite them, you can stay. I'll be back in about an hour and 15 minutes, and we can continue our conversation then. But I would love for you to come with me. I would be honored if you'd come. Point is, Jesus said, even in that consideration there, that you and I appreciate the assembling of the saints. So far, we've seen these reasons. One more, and the lesson will be yours. May I offer this one? Surrounding the topic of duty. First of all, duty to others, but also duty to one's self. One of the things that motivates many of us is truly a selflessness. That is to say, what's best for somebody else? What is genuinely in their best interest? Well, truly, there is much to say about the assembly of the saints in connection to that. 
for may you and I always remember, we have a commandment. It's connected to learning. We've already noted that today. Where are we going to find the truth of the kingdom of God set forth and highlighted? Will it not be in the assembling of the saints? I know that we each can study the Bible personally at, at house, and we should be able to do that and appreciate it. But there is nonetheless something very special about the way in which God orchestrated His New Testament, the assembly. Paul preached, you see, in Acts 20, and imparted instruction to them. And he told Timothy and Titus as well that you preach and teach with all authority. There's something, you see, about what we have access to and the way it's delivered in the assembly that isn't the same as it is at the house. For that reason, to maximize our learning, we ought to desire to be present where the Bible is taught and where encouragement takes place. And speaking of encouragement, we are commanded to exhort one another. I've never understood how someone thinks they can fulfill that command if they don't come. If the brethren are there in assembly and I'm not there, how can I exhort them? How can I teach and admonish them in song when they're there singing but I'm not there? How can I, in fact, warn them of matters unruly in their life, something which I'm commanded to do in 1 Thessalonians 5.14? How can I do that if they're there and I'm not? Is it not the case, then, in response to obligation to our brethren, we ought to want to be there, to encourage them, to exhort them, to warn them, to help them on the road to eternal life? But not only that. What about watchfulness? Isn't it the case that you and I are commanded as Christians to be watchful, always vigilant? Have you ever wondered, what if the Lord were to come back at 6.05 p.m. tonight, Central Time? So the Pippin congregation will be here in assembly. He comes back and finds me not here. Then I'd have to answer on judgment. The congregation of which you claim to be a part was meeting in assembly, but you were healthy and you were well, but you chose not to be there. Did you really love me most? What were you doing so important that was more significant and more worthwhile than assembling with the saints? Well, I was tired. I've got a hard work day tomorrow. I just felt like I needed the rest. Do you know, my son, that I went to the cross for you? I trudged up the hill. I wasn't even able to carry the cross. But I went. And the least that you could have done was to attend one hour service on a Sunday night. You weren't pressured not to be there. There weren't civil authorities waiting to arrest you if you came. You just didn't have the heart to come. I would hate to have to stand in judgment and try to give an answer for why I wasn't there. Let's close that slide like this. We ought to want to assemble because we want to go to heaven. And Jesus said, you know, that heaven is a prepared place for people prepared to enter there. Am I preparing myself to go there for let it be assured that I will not make it if I haven't prepared myself? 
Are you and I preparing ourselves? If so, we're going to thrill and delight at the thought of being present at every service of the church. Not just the one where the Lord's Supper is taken. That one's important without doubt. But so too the others are commanded. Let's close our slide and our sermon with one final observation. And it's this one. We've looked at five reasons why we should want to be present at every service. Number one, it's commanded. It's a good thing. As we have looked at the particular reasons and things presented, it's what's involved in being true to Jesus. It is a matter that touches our obligations to ourselves and to others. But not only that, it relates to the matter of spiritual growth. And so now it comes to this. Some have asked in light of a lot of matters over the recent three to four months. We've seen today how important it is to be present at the assemblies. But obviously, if a person cannot be there, maybe there's health reasons, and all of us have experienced things like that, where you literally are not able to assemble. That, of course, if one is not able to assemble, then God looks upon that as, in essence, a matter of an excused absence. You had providential reasons not to be present. But you notice, I didn't just choose not to be there. It was a condition that was upon me, and in answer to that condition. And therefore, I would hope that you and I could look upon the assemblies of the church, all of them, with the appreciation of the way the Word of God describes them. As I said, next Sunday we'll continue this discussion, but we'll do so from a more negative standpoint. Today, why positively should I want to be here every time? May I say, the Bible has even more to say about it than this. And as we look at that one next time, we'll be reminded of the strength and severity that goes with some of these thoughts as well. Today, as you and I analyze ourselves, are you and I in the faith? 2 Corinthians 13.5 demands that we make that analysis. Today, if there's anyone in this assembly whose heart is not right with God, just as Simon was told by Peter, you've got, to do, you've got to make this right. And if today we could help you do that, maybe you've never become a Christian. I hope as you reflect upon the cross, you will almost rush down this aisle in a moment because you'll know that your soul right now is more than in jeopardy. You're lost. And to make that right, you've got to have the power of the blood. Jesus has said that as you obey the gospel... He will wipe those sins away, and as you then are immersed into Christ, cleansing those sins, you will be a member of the church. He'll add you to it. But if you have become a Christian at some former time, but as of today you're not faithful, may I say, don't let that poor example continue. Make some changes. The Bible calls that repentance. And we'd be honored to pray upon your behalf to God. We'd be happy to help you. If today you'd like to make those observations and things known, why don't you do that while together we stand and while we sing?